everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with you guys. We have a great show for you today. We have a double feature, if you will. First, I'm going to be talking to two artists, a children's book author and a filmmaker. We're going to be talking about Puerto Rico, climate change, austerity. And then later on, I'm going to be playing an interview I did with the filmmakers behind the smash hit, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. But before we get into our interviews, of course, I just want to remind everyone, please like this stream. Thank you very much. When you just like the stream, that's a way to uh, help the show grow, which we really appreciate. Also, oh my God, this is so cool. We broke past 90,000 subscribers. So thank you so much to everyone who subscribed. If you haven't already subscribed, please do. It's a great way. It's free, obviously, a free way to support the show, to spread the word about it. Um, and if you haven't already done that, please hit subscribe and then press the bell. If you can become Patreon supporters, that's great. Patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And that way you not only help make this show happen, which you do, obviously, but you get exclusive uh, content. So you get extended interviews. So we're going to be releasing um, the full interview with the filmmakers who did How to Blow Up a Pipeline. That will be on Patreon. Part of it will be Patreon only. You can also access my full interview with Roger Waters from last week, where he uh, spills some tea about certain musicians who are afraid of uh, pissing off Israel. Uh, you can also get uh, the extended interview with Bryce Green, where we talk about the leaked documents. So all great reasons to join Patreon, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also, you can join the YouTube channel. You just become members and you get emojis and badges, and that's really cool. So I think those are all the announcements I want to make. Oh, and then happy birthday, happy birthday, Nora Eisenberg, my mom, and happy birthday, Sarah Eisenberg, my aunt, my late uncle's widow. That sounded really dark, but my late uncle's wife. So not my mom's sister, but my mom's brother's wife have the same birthday, which is cute. Uh, so happy birthday to Sarah and to Nora. And um, I think that's about it. I think we can just start the show. And someone wrote, let's get to 100 by today. That would be great. Let's, let's get to 100 by next week. Let's try that. And Renee Marie, happy birthday to you. I guess it's your birthday also, April 18th. Cool. So I'm going to uh, introduce our, our first guests. Very excited to be having them. They're both making their Katie Halber show debut. Karina Gonzalez is a bilingual speech-language pathologist at an elementary school in Brooklyn, New York, and author of the award-winning picture book, The Coquis Still Sing, Los Coquies Aún Cantan. And that was inspired by the real rebuilding of Puerto Rico following Hurricane Maria in 2017. Her forthcoming picture book is Churro Stand. El Carrito de Churro. And we're also going to be talking to Juan C. Davila, who is a documentary filmmaker, news producer, and activist born in Mayagüez, Puerto Rico. He's the director of the feature-length documentary film Simulacros de Liberación, Drills of Liberation, which was released in movie theaters around Puerto Rico. Previously, he directed two mid-length documentary films, 
His filmography also includes award-winning short films. And um, he is a senior producer at When We Fight, We Win, the podcast, and morning news producer for the newscast documentary Democracy Now!, where he continues to contribute. So without any further ado, let's bring on to the stage Karina and Juan. Hi. Hi. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me here in the show. Of course. Thanks for coming. Karina, you're muted, I think. Uh, yes, I, I was. Hi, Katie. Hi, Juan. Hi. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. I, I am currently the uh, producer with the Puerto Rican Voices show. Not oh. the, when we fight, we win, but maybe it was a mistake. So oh, okay. What did I say you were? You were what? Uh, I, I used to be a, 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 a producer with the podcast When We Fight, We Win. Oh, okay. But not currently. Oh, you used to be. Got it. I yeah. see. Okay. So guys, make sure you, you write that down. Update. <laughs> it's, an, it's an updated biography that we got. Okay. Well, um, I'm really excited to have you on because Puerto Rico is a story. Well, it's an island. It's a nation. It's a technically a territory, obviously. But it's, it's, it's often uh, ignored by the news media or misrepresented by the news media you know, but it, it's it's in the news and there's always really important things that are happening. Uh, I was just looking like at there was a news, uh, an article about how the default uh, bond default, new Puerto Rico bond default is predicted for June one. Then in some kind of good news, I mean, good news about bad news, but a coalition of nine environmental and community organizations are suing uh, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, for allegedly making Puerto Rico less resilient to storms and more vulnerable to power outages by rebuilding the island's old unreliable power grid without properly assessing the environmental impacts or considering residents' desire for renewable energy. That's according to the Washington Post. Um, the cousins of the governor of Puerto Rico were just re uh, arrested about um, embezzlement charges. But I want to get a, a different view of Puerto Rico, a view from kind of on the ground and there's a lot of discussion about how bad things are in Puerto Rico without understanding why they are that way, but also without understanding about how much activism and organizing there is going on. I'll start with you, Karina. Just tell us why you were inspired to write the book that you wrote. There's so much going on in Puerto Rico, and thank you, Katie, for mentioning some of the stories. I was inspired to write the story after Hurricane Maria, obviously. Uh, we saw awful stereotypes um, in the media about who Puerto Ricans are and what they experienced after Hurricane Maria. And I felt as a duty um, to write the story as a corrective to that narrative. And, and it's a story of how nature and humanity um, mirror each other in terms of resiliency, how um, humanity is just as resilient as nature and vice versa. And I found so many inspiring stories that were going on uh, during the hurricane and after the hurricane, including my my own abuela who lives in Vega Baja. She was without electricity for six months. And, you know, as in at that time in her late seventies, you can imagine how cruel and difficult that situation is. And I was hearing from her how she, along with her neighbors, were coming together and sharing food and sharing whatever supplies they had. And we would send her supplies also, how they came together. And I just noticed how the media was, you know, they swoop in in these moments of disaster. But, you know, once people start to resolve their needs themselves, the cameras turn off. And that's why I appreciate so much of, of 
Juan Carlos's work because he he's he's been there and he's um, sh- amplifying the voices of the Puerto Rican people and what they've been experiencing before and after Hurricane Maria, which is so important because, like I said, a lot of media they swoop in, they take their footage of the disaster and then they leave. And I think that is an injustice and a disservice to what people are actually experiencing in Puerto Rico. Yeah, definitely. And Juan, what about you? So uh, pretty much I'm going to start with uh, what Karina was saying at the end. You know, uh, pretty much the the mainstream media has been, uh, you know, just gone through the camera and then and then leave. So uh, and there's a and particularly after uh, Hurricane Maria and uh I mean, previously uh, when the debt crisis was happening, but then uh, more uh, towards uh, the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, there was a lot of media uh, covering Puerto Rico uh, that uh, did not, you know, uh, that did not uh, continue uh, covering what what was happening, uh, and and that also uh, that it did not uh, put into context everything that uh, Puerto Ricans have been facing before the hurricane because. I think that that one of the things that that before the hurricane, uh, before Hurricane Maria, which we're still talking about it, uh, uh, five years uh, afterwards now, uh, before Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico was already in a very bad shape because of the austerity measures that uh, have been implemented by governments uh, to pay a public uh, debt. That has that that has been a, that is a debt uh, to, to Wall Street bondholders, and and you mentioned uh, some of it uh, earlier uh, in your introduction. And the thing is that the debt of the the Puerto Rican debt is is what some people call an odious debt, right? And a debt that has not benefited Puerto Ricans, and uh, and that has uh, and it's a debt right now that uh, that we question a lot. And behind this debt, they have. Uh, uh, putting a lot of austerity measures and are right now uh, imposing a, a new way of uh, how capitalism works in, in Puerto Rico. So it's some of uh, the, the Chuck Doctrine. So uh, we have like uh, two Chuck Doctrines, one after the others. We had the debt crisis and then we had Hurricane Maria. So really, uh, I, I started the documentary before Hurricane Maria happened and, uh, and uh, I was focusing on how anti-austerity activists was organizing against the Fiscal Control Board, which is a seven-member board that was put in Puerto Rico, imposed in Puerto Rico by the U.S. Congress to administer uh, pretty much the, the economy of Puerto Rico and approve the fiscal plans of the years. And they have demanded to the Puerto Rican government a lot of uh, reduction and a lot of cuts in, in public spending. And, uh, and I started making the documentary uh, focus on that, but then later uh, came Hurricane Maria, and what Hurricane Maria really end up uh, showing is how the austerity measures make our country very vulnerable to climate change. When you don't have agencies that have the resources that they need, when you don't have a, a healthcare system that has the resources that they need. So what we have is that all this austerity that have been uh, coming on through the years and all of this weakening of public agencies uh, you know, became worse uh, when Hurricane Maria made landfall. So pretty much, you know, this documentary going into the same question, why why did I do it? Is because, you know, uh, first I started documenting this without any, because I've been a documentary filmmaker uh, since 2012, documenting the struggles of the Puerto Rican people. So I felt that it was important to uh, re- register what was happening in regards to 
the new uh, anti-austerity fight that 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 has been uh, taking place. But you know, through that, the 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 entire process evolved. But you know, it's it's part of my my. It has. It, it's not only that I did this documentary for one specific reason, but this. A documentary is more like a larger part of, of my body of work that has always been not only this documentary, you know, uh, re- uh, really uh, putting voice to the voiceless and really uh, showing a, a counter narrative to what uh, it shows about Puerto Rico in the mainstream media, especially the U.S. mainstream media, which doesn't understand uh, the colonial context of Puerto Rico when, when it's reporting. And what is that? Can you can you guys share some of that colonial context that you feel is so often absent from the media's representation? Well, I I think there's some uh, aspect of it, uh, really some many many uh, uh, journalists and communicators uh, from the U.S. Uh, and, and many times not from the U.S. but from other countries too tend to uh, uh, continue making uh, reproduce uh, coloniality. Uh, with the the work that they do in Puerto Rico, one of them is pretty much like victimizing Puerto Ricans. Like Puerto Ricans are people who are waiting for for help. That uh, that we are defenseless. That without the United States government, we are not going to be able to survive. And that is the mentality that colonizers put into our minds in Puerto Rico. That without the United States, we are basically uh, defenseless and we cannot survive in in this world. Basically. So, you know, uh, when, when the media comes in and constantly say, you know, talk about the how Puerto Ricans as United States citizens need to be uh, yeah, their, their issues and, the, and, their, and our problems need to be solved by the U.S. government, they uh, portray us as uh, we are in help. And, uh, and really, we are in help, but we need another type of uh, assistance where first we need you know, more control of, of our resources uh, in the sense that we can uh, we can eventually, you know, uh, not uh, need the, the U.S. government. And that should be coming through a sense of, of reparations, not not in, in the type of assistance. But more, more specifically, when we uh, talk about this, Puerto Ricans uh, have been you know, uh, solving their problems because there's an absence of of the government and not only the Puerto Rican government, but for the federal government. And I think that in in many instances, it it misses that Puerto Ricans have, in a a way, uh, what what we call, uh, you know, uh, what what I show in my film, all the self-management projects, all the self-sustaining projects, uh, the mutual aid centers, other uh, community organizations like Casa Pueblo, really uh, Puerto Ricans have uh, have been autonomous in, in their survival methods. And I think it just uh, shows that, you know, what, what really ha- the way that we have been able to survive is that we have unite, at, as Karina also shows in the book, you know, the, really the help that has come from the United States have been very, 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 very small. And that, and the Puerto Ricans, if if we would have been waiting for FEMA and for the resources of the United States, we could not have survived. Same, simply. So I think that aspect of the, of the, of uh, of the mainstream media of of not showing uh, how we have been come self reliance under the circumstances and self reliant, although not having the autonomy to be, is what has uh, uh, make us. 
survive in after all, all of these disasters. And it just shows that Puerto Ricans can govern ourselves because that's part of the colonial narrative that we cannot govern ourselves and that we need help from the United States in order to survive. No, all these processes after Hurricane Maria, after the debt crisis, and after all these disasters show that uh, Puerto Ricans are in a way governing ourselves, although not through the legal means of, of governing because we are still a colony. And it always, you know, and I think, you know, uh, just to wrap up, you know, we and continue the conversation, it, uh, all conversations in Puerto Rico need to put a, uh, to put into context uh, the colonial context. Like I say, you know, uh, w this is not something, you know, all the problems in Puerto Rico come because we don't have really uh, the capacity to to administer our resources because we are a United States colony. So it's not just because of corruption. It's not just because uh, we are a poor country. You know, all of this comes because there's a major factor and it is U.S. colonialism and it's constantly absent from from these narratives and in this case even the fiscal control board when we talk about disasters we need to talk about the fiscal control board too um well let's get into uh and anything else that you want to add uh, either one of you about this colonial context that you're referring to i think juan carlos said a lot there and i if i can add anything it would be that what's missing often too from the mainstream media narrative are the policies that make life so difficult in Puerto Rico for people. You know, the Jones Act is something that a lot of, you know, Amer uh, United people from the United States are unaware of. Um, they, a lot of people haven't even really heard, heard the word, the words Jones Act before. And that is um, something that really affects the lives of the Puerto Rican people, especially during Hurricane Maria. And, you know, they briefly, Trump at the time briefly waived the Jones Act but it's still in place and it makes life really difficult for people in Puerto Rico, along with a really high electricity bills. Uh, can you, know, you explain what the Jones Act is for people? So talking? it's essentially um, U.S. ships are the only types of vessels that are permitted to enter Puerto Rico to bring goods in. So if a ship, for example, wants to bring goods in from Venezuela or from Mexico, they'll have to dock at a U.S. port or it has to be a U.S. vessel in order for it to enter Puerto Rico. And so that makes it really difficult when there's a disaster like Hurricane Maria for goods to be accessed. And so that was a huge issue, you know, you know, because of the hurricane and subsequent earthquakes and things like that. And um, and it makes it makes it difficult, too, for um uh, the Puerto Rican people to have the type of um, fresh produce that they need, uh, nutritional sustenance. I mean, there's so many aspects of how this, um, the Jones Act affects the lives of the Puerto Rican people. And a lot of people in the United States have no idea what it is or how it impacts people in Puerto Rico, especially that, you know, we're cut off from the mainland of the United States. And so as an archipelago, we need to have access to goods, um, especially in situations where there's an immediate need uh, and so that's often left out of the mainstream narrative. It's not really discussed and people don't know about it, um, along with many other uh, difficulties. Like I said, the electricity, the privatized electrical grid, how um, light bills are some of the highest in the United States, in Puerto Rico, just many aspects and it's totally left out of the narrative. And um, thank you, Katie, for, you know, letting us talk about these things, because even journalists, you know, in the left, right, kind of ignoring Puerto Rico in a way. Um, they focus on other ish, uh, other countries and 
And I, and I appreciate any opportunity we have to talk about what's happening in Puerto Rico. Yeah, and it's it's interesting what you guys both just pointed to because it's almost like the worst of both worlds. It's like Puerto Ricans are portrayed as hapless victims, kind of. Like they can't help themselves, but uh, when that's not true, but also on the other hand, the structural forces that create those conditions are also ignored. So it becomes, a, it's almost like a, a, a pathologized uh, representation, uh, totally absent, like ahistorical. And uh, that's why I thought that both, I wanted to have both of you on. So let's actually, um, let's, I want to feature both of your, your works of art. Let's, Juan, let's have you set up one uh, clip from your documentary and we can talk about that. And then Karina, we can uh, go to your book. Yeah, thank you. So the first uh, clip that uh, that I'm going to that that I'm going to be showing here is a clip about a, a a scene of the documentary "Drills of Liberation," where activists are building wooden shields. Uh, these shields uh, have been made in order to protect a, a themselves in, in protests where the police have been very violent and. Uh, and you would see uh, this scene. Uh, the group that is building the the wooden shields here is a, a group called Jornadas eh, Acabaron Las Promesas, which has been a collective that has been uh, the at the front of uh, of the movement against uh, the Fiscal Control Board and and the Promesa Act in Puerto Rico, which is the one that enables uh, the this board. So, Acabaron Las Promesas began uh, in 2016 after uh, pro the PROMESA uh, Act was approved and it has evolved in, in many ways. But here, what you would see is Sacaron uh, Las PROMESAS in its prime, uh, building uh, shields for uh, one of the protests that is going to happen in 2017, just weeks before Hurricane Maria. Juan, can you just very briefly describe for people what the PROMESA Act is? Yeah, thank you, uh, Katie. So uh, it is very important for people to know this, but really what uh, the PROMESA Act does is that it confirms our uh, colonial relationship with the United States. Puerto Rico have been taken uh, from the colon uh, Committee of uh, of Colonies that, that works with the colonies of the United Nations because, you know, the United States have often said that Puerto Rico is now is a United States territory and therefore not a colony. What this act confirms is that pretty much uh, the government of Puerto Rico virtually has uh, no power right now because, uh, you know, there has been uh, the PROMESA Act, which is the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act, is an act put into place so that Puerto Rico uh, will solve it, its, its economic crisis, which is basically... Uh, to pay the debt to Wall Street uh, bondholders, and uh, and the act right now is it has all the connections to all this uh, displacement that is happening right now, all these uh, budget cuts to public spending, and uh, what is very uh, unprecedented about this act uh, and about this law is that it put a seven-member uh, board to uh, oversee all finances of uh, the Puerto Rican government. And uh, in this sense, uh, they have the uh, a lot of power in which they, for example, can veto uh, laws like it, uh, it recently happened with some modifications to the labor reform that the uh, uh, government here put, uh, you know, and voted and, and even the government uh, nor uh, signed uh, 
and approved both that the fiscal control board and 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 uh, said that they that that was not that they do not approve that and then they went into the courts and uh, the judge Taylor Swain uh, you know uh, made her decision in favor of what the fiscal control board was saying and uh, and they can and they need to approve the budgets for the year of Puerto Rico they uh, like I say they can veto a law so pretty much they can make they they have like it it, it just shows and evidences that. Pretty much the Puerto Rican government, the elected officials that, that we elect here, have really no 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 power, no decision making power in Puerto Rico. Because if it really if the fiscal control board does not want to approve whatever legislation they put forward or the budget they put forward for the year, it simply does not happen. So the fiscal the, the Promesa Act is really the the main colonial, you know, uh, L, uh, in, system right now in place in Puerto Rico that Puerto Ricans should be uh, fighting for against, against, yeah. yeah. Right, fighting against, yeah. Right. So let's go to that clip. Antes de llevártelo, hazle así, para que no bote el papel. Así. Hazlo con calma. Ya, esto no va a pasar. Hazlo con calma. Ya. Anyway, pues, material. Material todavía me falta. Hay una deuda en el país y no fue en pro ni a conciencia del pueblo de la gente, ni en pro de la calidad de vida de la gente. Así que esa deuda la tienen que pagar los responsables y no somos la gente de a pie. Estamos en preparativo para manifestaciones próximas. Se acerca el 31 de agosto. Por tanto, eh, es una manifestación conmemorando, la, o sea, conmemorándonos, dejando saber que después de un año seguimos aquí gente resistiendo. And um, let's show another clip uh, from your film, unless there's something you want to say reacting to that. Should we watch them together or? We can watch, we, we can watch, well, well, just very, because there's yeah. another, also another type of, of, of movement against uh, this austerity uh, policies and it has been the the teachers movement, the the Federation of Teachers of Puerto Rico. You know, I, I said that the Fernanda uh, Garros and Las Promesas have been on, on the on the front of it, but you know there has been all these other organizations that have uh, been taking on on very specific struggle uh, struggles against Promesa, and uh, one of them is the Federation of Teachers of Puerto Rico, which has been fighting against uh, school closures. And the next clip that you're gonna see is uh, a school that uh, the day that a, a school was closed and they uh, told all the teachers that they should pack their things and leave. De vuelta a la zona metropolitana, regresé a Dorado, al barrio Mameyal. 
donde justo antes del inicio de clases, el Departamento de Educación ordenó el desalojo de la escuela Luis Muñoz Rivera y reubicó sus estudiantes en la escuela Jacinto López Martínez. Estoy canalizando fondos federales para aumentar su salario. Can you explain, by the way, who this woman is, who we're going to hear from? Oh, you're muted. This is uh, Julia Kelleher, who is uh, uh, showed earlier in the documentary. She was the Secretary of Education of Puerto Rico, uh, an American person. Uh, so it wasn't a Puerto Rican person that was heading the education department during uh, the Ricardo Rosselló administration first two years, which was the government that uh, was ousted here in Puerto Rico. And uh, and she is the one that uh, that closed the, the, that putting to uh, that executed this project of closing uh, the schools in Puerto Rico in order to uh, cut uh, public spending. And they, they closed hundreds of schools while she was uh, doing. Uh, they closed hundreds of schools during her tenure, and uh, and it has been the largest school closings uh, in the history of, of Puerto Rico. And she was uh, actually uh, later indicted. Uh, yeah for uh, corruption charges. Yeah. De otra manera, voluntariamente se quieren. Lo que estoy haciendo con este, de no despedir a nadie. Lo que no entiendo es que por, por qué tenemos que pelear. Estoy haciendo todo lo que está a mi alcance para velar por sus intereses. Y lo hago porque es correcto. Juana Maimí será una de las maestras desplazadas este otoño de 2018. Este era el salón de kinder, tiene hasta sus baños y el salón de kinder de la otra escuela no tiene baños. Yeah, and that whole scene is very moving, where that teacher is um, very upset about the, the school closing. Um, yeah, it was, it's a really great film, by the way. I really recommend it. And it, it you meet a lot of interesting characters and um, it shows you, like we were saying, it's not just about victimization you know you see people coming together it's not it's not like bootstrapping either it's not like one person making it happen it's solidarity and and working together to to make change um what what about you karina do you want to share uh some of your work with us yeah absolutely i just want to say that scene when i saw it um when when juan carlos had had i think you were showing it uh what was that theater Huang in the city. Cin Cinema Village in New York. Cinema Village. When I saw that scene, I cried so hard because I work in a school and I know what it's like. And when you have young students, you need to have a bathroom in this in the in a salon in the classroom. It makes it easier. And she had such a spacious classroom and it was plentiful. And then to to lose that and and have a smaller classroom with less resources is heartbreaking. Um Yeah. Uh, would you like me to read from the story? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is the cover of the book, The Coquilla is Still Sing, which if you're listening to Juan Carlos's background noise, you hear the coquilla singing. He's in Vieques. Oh, you are? That's <laughs> what it was. Oh yeah. my God, that is so funny. Oh, okay. So wait, let's hear it. Let's be yeah. quiet for a second. Let me play that background noise. Hold on. Subtle, you hear That's it, it. Yeah, I asked Brad. I was like, "What is that in the background?" Because I thought you were in New York, Juan. I didn't realize that you were in Puerto Rico. That is so funny. No, no, I'm here in Vieques, Puerto Rico. <laughs> so this is the cover of the book, "The Coquilla Still Sing." So I'm gonna read the story, "The Coquilla Still Sing." 
Uh, hopefully we can see the pages. Nice. Um, this was illustrated by my brilliant friend, Crystal Quiles. Um, okay, let's get started. At sunup, I climb the ladder to the roof. From here, I am as tall as Abuela's mango tree. Its branches, heavy with fruit, reach out to say hello. Hola, I reply, giving the branch a shake. Ripened mangoes rain down onto the garden with gentle thuds. Proxima página. The mango tree gives us many gifts. When the sun is high, its leaves lend their cool shade. And when I'm hungry, its fruit is the sweetest snack. And when night falls, a song fills the air. <laughs> Hidden in the garden live the coqui frogs. Luna runs in circles, barking and dancing to their tune. Coqui, coqui, oh, how I love thee. I sing back. You sound just like your mother, Abuela says. Suddenly, a strong wind blows, lifting the coquilla song away. Every evening, Papi sits at the kitchen table listening to the radio. But tonight, music isn't playing. A reporter is talking about a storm. Hurricane, she says. The words come in pieces, fighting through static, making landfall. Stay safe. My little brother Benito cries, and my heart races. But Papi has a plan. Benito and Abuela search for flashlights and candles. I shut the windows, and Papi seals the doors. The rain falls, drumming a steady beat on the metal roof. Luna bounces at my feet. Don't worry, Lunita, I will protect you, I say, pulling her close. The howling wind slams against the windows. I grip Papi's hand and he whispers in my ear, Cookie, Cookie, oh, how I love thee. I peek through a slit in the shutter. Crack, a branch snaps falling against our house. The mango tree, I scream. Papi pulls me away and guides me to the closet. Inside, Abuela and Benito are sheltering. We huddle together as the house shakes. Luna shivers in my arms. Abuela prays to the howling wind, her heart beating against my chest. With one giant gust, the roof lifts up and away. Rain gushes in. Hours pass and the rain stops, turning everything quiet. We are wet and scared, but we are alive. There's no electricity or running water. Trees have fallen everywhere, blocking the safe road. Our garden is gone too. The mango tree stands brown and bare. Little by little, we remove the fallen trees. My strong arms help me carry buckets of fresh water. But time passes slowly. At sundown, the coquilla song is silent. I sing to them instead, hoping they will hear me. Coqui, coqui, oh, how I love thee. Papi tells me <clears throat> they will come back, and so will all of this. We will always have each other, says Abuela. Seeds, too, says our neighbor, Don Rafael. He hands me a fistful of vegetable seeds and says, this is our gold. The garden becomes our gathering place, the place where seeds of hope are planted, 
a place where food is shared with our neighbors, a place where laughter can be heard once again. But some nights I cry. I think about my friends who moved away. We never said goodbye. I think about Bobby and Abuela with each passing day, their energy fades. I notice how the mango tree stands brown and bare, yet it stands. My school's doors are closed forever, yet my teachers taught me the books can open any door. At night, our neighborhood is without light, yet we can see the moon and the stars more clearly than ever. I hold on to what I have, my smile, my community, and my family, because my roots are strong. Months later, glimpses of green return. Elenita, Abuela calls. Buds sprout from an old branch of the mango tree. Soon its leaves will lend their cool shade and sweet fruit will hang from its branches. The tree is strong like you, Elena, Abuela says. Like our pueblo, I say, nothing can knock us down. I open the window as the August heat creeps into my room, softly at first and then louder and louder. A familiar song fills the air. Cookie, cookie. Oh, how I love thee. Luna runs in circles, barking and dancing to their tune. Benito, they're singing again. I shout, the coquillas still sing. The coquillas song sounds like home, even though home has forever changed. That's the story. Thank you. That Thank was you so for letting me read it. Of course, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Definitely a great book. You can't see how great the illustrations are, obviously, yeah. because she's just showing them, but it's really great for, it's a great gift for kids. Um, yeah, great book. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you yeah. both. Yeah, it's, um, uh, art is a wonderful way to talk about complex issues or to describe or show in a way that's different from just regular political discourse. And, you know, difficult things happen to children just as they happen to adults. And it's important that they have literature to help them process these difficult yeah. situations. And what, what have the responses been like to, to your book and to your film? Um, I, I just came back from California, actually. Um, it's wonderful to see how meaningful this story could be to children who are from different countries. Um, and, you know, I remember when we were pitching this story, there were some editors who thought this story was too specific or wasn't global enough. And um, I just believe there's, um, with any situation that a human being experiences, um, there's universality and specificity. And around the world, we see um, natural disasters happening and children all around the globe are experiencing them. And it's important, like I just said, that we have literature to help them process these issues. So I've had a wonderful response from kids, from adults, from viejitos, from all types of people from different backgrounds. And um, it's been a really beautiful thing to have those really special moments and connect with people um, about the book. And what? And it got an award, right? Yes, it um, it won the Pura del Pre uh, Youth Media Honor Award for writing and for illustration. And so it has this beautiful little sellito with the face of Pura del Pre. New York City's first Puerto Rican librarian. So it's oh. very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, in my case, uh, the the film, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because first people who, who saw it or I still 
uh, hear that every time we uh, we show it is that oh the the film is very long but I did not get bored yeah so is that uh, so I, and I always joke like oh there's a person you know I, I do you think that documentaries are uh, you know uh, boring but uh, but you know because it is long it is a two hour political documentary right. but it doesn't feel that way. Yeah, thank you for, for letting me know. And then, you know, it, it has been also our issue always uh, to program the film because uh, programmers have been saying, you know, uh, even in film festivals, you know, the film is too long and it's also like a political documentary. Uh, so uh, so there has been a lot of uh, holdback from, from programmers. But, uh, and we have, uh, and through that, we have been, we have a, uh, been organizing uh, our own spaces to, to show the film, right? Uh, another thing that we have be, been doing, you know, is self-reliant, right? Uh, and But the film has been uh, very successful, uh, you know, with young people particularly. And it shows that there's a need of, of younger generations to understand these issues. And even though the, the film is, is, is long, you know, you could, you know, in two hours, we, you can really uh, grasp a, a large glimpse of everything that has been happening in Puerto Rico. Uh, throughout uh, the last years and you know and particularly we have been receiving a lot of uh, you know uh, you know the, the film has been like i say very successful among uh, young audiences particularly millennials and generation c and that's mainly our, our most uh, our main audience when we make events that's most of the people who show uh, are at our events uh, you know uh, we don't have specific demographics of how we did uh, in theaters, you know, but, you know, as we've seen in social media, everybody that was recommending the film, everybody that was tagging our film throughout those seven weeks that the film was in theaters, it was mostly uh, young people who in, in many ways relate to all of these uh, uh, reggaeton culture uh, that is being very popular now. That is, you know, it is through this language that also we 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 convey these uh, complex issues. So the film has been a, uh, it has has very good, uh, you know, uh, how do you say that word? Uh, reception. Reception. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. You know, I get lost in translation sometimes. Yeah. yeah. It had had a lot of a uh, good reception uh, from from young audiences. You know. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah, I'd really, how, and how can people see, I, people can obviously buy your book, Karina, but what about your films, Juan? Yeah, so right now, uh, this film, uh, Drills of Liberation, is being distributed by uh, Turwell Newsreel oh, uh, for uh, the educational uh, market. So those of you who are listening to this show, who are uh, professors at university or educators or work at libraries, you can uh, request uh, the film uh, uh, for for your library uh, to buy it, and uh, and you can also coordinate a, a screening with us or with Turwell Newsreel and educational screening, and that's in a way one way that that we maintain our independence and continue funding our work. So what we have right now is the educational distribution going on uh, because we still have not finished that part. Uh, after the summer, the film is going to be uh, streaming. Uh, in a in in a streaming platform, and we're still coordinating those uh, very last details about that. So uh, I expect mostly in the summer that we are going to be uh, having the film completely online. Uh, but for now, uh, you know, we're still in uh, touring and with the educational distribution. And and like I say, for those of uh, of you who are educators 
uh, work in universities, schools, libraries, uh, museums. You can uh, get this film and coordinate a screening, which we are still going all the way through through the summer uh, with uh, Terrible Newsreel. Great. Thank you. All right. Any final thoughts before we um, shift to the the second part of the show? I can't recommend Honky's uh, documentary enough, and I, I really hope that people listening will look for it, will search for it, and purchase it if they can, or find an opportunity to watch it in the future. It's important. Yeah. Same. Say, say, I, I say the same with Karina, and uh-huh. I just think that in, in order for for people to get, a, you know, that I mean, you cannot expect to get all your experience from from one, a, you know, piece from one documentary from from one book. So it is, you know, it is part of, you know, it all. It, like you said earlier, Katie, it's not about just one person. Like it's the same thing with the movements. The same thing with artists like us who are trying to convey the, this message and, and, and deliver uh, what is happening in Puerto Rico to and amplify it to larger audiences that is not it cannot be the job of only one person that but that is more of a movement and I want to say that there's is a, there, there has been like a, a an emerging a movement of, of new artists in Puerto Rico that are radical artists you know uh, Karina and myself are just a few but if you follow with other groups uh, like, like Bemba, for example, the collective that made the art for the film. If you, if you follow a, a musical artist right now, uh, for example, Hijo de Boriquen, uh, you would see that there's, a, there's so many, you know, in, in many arts, there's so many uh, radical artists that, have the, that are right now in Puerto Rico. And, you know, we are the ones that are bringing you uh, those first-hand experiences. And uh, we don't need somebody else to tell, uh, you know, our stories. We are telling our own stories. And that's the way that you get will get the the real uh, conversation and, and the real idea of what is happening in Puerto Rico who, through the people that live it. Well, thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you for having us thank on the show, Katie. An honor. Thank you so much. Bye. That was great. And guys, don't go anywhere because that was that was one half of the show and it was a great half of the show. And I'm so thankful to those two guests and definitely check their work out. So now I'm going to play an interview that I recorded with the filmmakers behind the film, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and um, which is a new movie. It's a heist movie. Uh, and interestingly enough, it's inspired by the book How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm. And that is actually more like a manifesto. That's not fiction. This film, though, is a fictional adaptation of that manifesto or that book. And it's about a group of eight young people from different parts of the United States who decide to blow up an oil pipeline in West Texas. Um, Also, the the creative team behind the film is more diverse than it seems from this uh, interview you're going to watch uh, because Ariella Barrer, who stars in the film, is one of the producers and one of the writers, was supposed to join the conversation, but she was sick. So she's going to come on another time. But uh, that's why it's it's three dudes instead of three dudes and a woman. Um, so just wanted to to make that clear. So the following is a chat that I had with Daniel Goldhaber, the director, writer, and producer, Jordan Scholl, the writer and executive producer, and Daniel Garber, the editor. So without any further ado, and you can watch the rest of it on Patreon, but we're going to show you a big chunk of it right now. Here are the filmmakers behind the great film, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. 
Hello and welcome, Jordan, Dan, and Daniel. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Of course. And it's a really great film, um, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And of course, uh, as people probably know, it is based on a book. Um, and the book is called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire. It's by Andreas Malm, and it was published in 2021. And I guess I'll start off with asking you a kind of basic question, but I think it's good to, to get everyone on the same page. How did this film come to be? So, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I've been working with Jordan for about uh, eight, eight years, and Jordan's an academic, and he has always been uh, kind of threatening to adapt a work of academic theory into a movie, uh, in part because, you know, in this in this IP moment that we have in the film industry, I think that there has been, you know, the, the, the idea was that there's this kind of vast untapped potential uh, of ideas um, out there in the world. And that what's an IP is, moment? Well, that, that, you know, the film industry is really obsessed with intellectual property, with things being adaptations. And I think that, you know, some of these early conversations that Jordan and I were having were around this notion of like, ultimately, that's kind of about being able to like track back the legacy of, an, of the ideas of a particular work. And, you know, if you want to kind of be pushing things forward, maybe you should go and look at what's happening in the academic sphere and then adapt that directly into a popular medium. Um, so that was, that was very much kind of, you know, an early conversation that we'd been having. And then me, Jordan and Ariella had kind of just ended up hanging out, uh, in like a little COVID pod at the end of 2020. And had just been like watching movies and talking about things that we were interested in doing. I'd cast Ariella in a film, in the lead of a film in, at the beginning of 2020 that had fallen apart because of COVID and had really wanted to work with her, had wanted to write with her. And um, so we'd kind of just all gotten on the same page. And then as Jordan left, he basically left a copy of How to Bowl the Pipeline on my desk as a reference book for another thing that we'd been talking about. I read it and I think there was a sense that this would be a, a really great collaboration for us and, and also coming out of, you know, a year of COVID lockdown, the Black Lives Matter protest, the 2020 and the, um, you know, the January 6th insurrection, just, you know, I think we were all feeling pretty powerless and, and like we wanted to work on something and we wanted to work on something that felt actually like it had some sort of social value. And the book suggested not just ideas that were really valuable, but also, the possibility for like a very exciting and fresh kind of uh, heist film as well. One of the issues that the film, excuse me, one of the issues that the book deals with as well as the, as the film is the issue of self-defense. Can you guys elaborate on that? What that means to you, what that means in the book and also in the film? I can go for this one <laughs> if you guys want. Um, I mean, I think that, that it, I mean, I think part of what is, it's a big challenging question because obviously, you know, th there's, there's kind of a few layers to it. I think most broadly speaking, um, the movie is asking this question of what kind of tactics are going to be necessary to fight climate change and to move on from uh, the kind of currently completely unsustainable way in which we live and in which we treat the natural environment around us. Um, I think that the movie explores that question through the heist genre by telling the story of eight characters who believe that the destruction of this pipeline is an act of self-defense. Um, 
I think that from a political standpoint, there is this question of, you know, a system that is so deeply entrenched in fossil fuels uh, and it kind of at every level. And there's this question of like, how do you break that stranglehold and move on um, and, and force the system to reform? And there's a lot of ideas in theory that one of the best ways to do that is through something called the necessity defense, which is essentially somebody destroys a piece of fossil fuel infrastructure, but is able to make the case, legally speaking, that they're essentially protecting themselves in the future by doing so. If you were able to establish that kind of legal precedent, that would kind of establish some of the legal precedents necessary to like really, really force a move away from fossil fuels. And, um, you know, I think the reason for self-defense just kind of also is you know, the, the, the kind of metaphor that I give is that if, you know, somebody is holding a gun to your head, we all understand you have a right to take that gun away from them and disassemble it. Um, and that the fossil fuel industry has a gun to the head of the world. And I think the question the movie is asking is, do we have a right to take that away from them and disassemble it? Um, and so I think that, um, one of the other things that's inherent to self-defense question is it's universal. And I also think that climate change is a universal problem. And so we were trying to explore this question of tactics in a way that would hopefully be relatable to a wide group of people. It's interesting. You say that it raises the question of whether or not self-defense, uh, it, you say it, the film raises the question of self-defense. Is it not an actual call for this action? I mean, that's a big, big question, right? But what do you think, both personally and I, as someone who sees who saw the film, thinks that it grapples with this question, but I would say it makes a very kind of definitive pro-self-defense argument. Not everybody, I think, walks away from the film with the same understanding that the film is just resolutely a defense of, of this action. And I think one of the things that was fun for me about the script was seeing how it diverged from the book. And I think during the writing process, I know that Andreas shared a lot of the critiques of his book as well. And that sort of allowed us to dramatize some of the uh, conflicts around the ideas that the book explores. Um, and I think that a lot of people can walk into this movie and still still emerge saying, I don't think that this is the best way to deal with the problem at hand. I think that there are better tactics that we can employ, or I personally at least am not prepared to engage in property destruction. Um, I think that Ultimately, I hope that the film gets people to challenge those ideas and wonder whether you know they could at least understand or empathize with people who choose to embrace those tactics. But it's not necessarily a call for everyone who watches the film to just go out and do it themselves. I think that there can be very reasonable uh, justifications for going in a different direction. But I do think that part of the provocation is, okay, some people might choose to embrace these tactics. If we don't want to go to those lengths, then what are the other things that we can do in the short term to try to avoid that kind of outcome? And ultimately, there is no substitute for moving away from fossil fuels. We have to do that in one way or another. And if you don't want people to dismantle it in a way that is you know, unruly and outside of the law, then we'd better go about doing that in a very intentional and planned way as soon as possible. Right. Yeah. And I, I just to sort of second that too, you know, I'm, uh, in addition to working in film, I'm an academic. So I spend a lot of time in the sort of, you know, far off world of ideas. And I think something that's exciting about taking a text, an academic text and turning it into a piece of art is that 
Um, you know, we get to, when you take ideas and put them in the real world and put them in people's lives, they all become a lot messier and a lot more complicated. Um, and that, that was so much of what we wanted to think about with this movie was what is the actual experience of feeling that you have no choice, but to blow up a pipeline. What is it like to go through that? You know, what is it like to, to have that conviction? And, and again, even if people don't think that the tactics that the character you characters use are justified, I hope that they can build empathy with understanding why they feel that way. Right. One of the interesting things about the book is that it's not only a, a defense of self-defense through these kinds of sabotages, but it actually critiques the rejection of the sabotage. And there's a, an interesting part of the book where uh, he he compares it to um, an, something that happens with a man named Muhammad Rafiq, who uh, was at a mosque in Oslo when uh, a young racist Islamophobic terrorist basically enters with guns. Uh, he wants to kill as many Muslims as possible. And uh, Muhammad Rafiq wrestles him to the ground and kicks away his weapons and holds him in a chokehold until the police arrived. And mom writes, no massacre transpired, but evidently Rafiq used a considerable amount of interpersonal violence in the encounter, which would imply his fall from pacifist grace. To a moral pacifist, Rafiq ought not to have resort resorted to such means. Moral pacifism claims to hold life in the highest regard and detests its violent termination, but a defensive act that saves lives and reduces violence is unacceptable to it in, uh, insofar as it involves active physical force. This seems flawed. So is that, uh, which I thought was a really uh, great kind of crystallization of this issue. Um, part of the issue with climate change is that, well, I'll pose this question actually, why is it that people don't see it more as having a gun to our head, given how, how existential this threat is? I think a big reason is because climate change is very abstract, right? It's like, you know, one of the most significant symptoms of climate change is extreme weather. But the problem with extreme weather is that we've had extreme weather and we've dealt with extreme weather forever. You know what I mean? Like, you know, everything from, from hurricanes to, to fires, you know, these have been some of the struggles that humans have had living um, on planet Earth and, and also colonizing planet Earth. Um, they're trying to build cities. You know, that's, that's one of the big challenges. So there's this issue where it's like, you know, it's 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 very hard to actually illustrate climate change, and this is something that I worked on when I was much younger. Um, I worked as a, an editor, assistant editor, on a film called Chasing Ice that came out in 2012. That was all about trying to literally visualize the climate crisis through time lapse videos of melting glaciers. The idea being that you have this notion of glacial pace, um, which is very very slow, and then you can see these glaciers literally vanish in front of your eyes. Um, and, and, and so I think that, you know, that has been the challenge for the scientific community in terms of messaging climate change, but it's also been the thing that, you know, the industry has taken advantage of, uh, to kind of continue doing what they're doing. Um, because, you know, you can, you can visualize some sort of plastic product very easily, but you can't visualize the toxic waste that spills into the lake. Uh, that, 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 that is a byproduct of its creation. And so at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that that's changed, I think, in the last three or four years. I think that 
extreme weather events have gotten so significant that I think people have recognized it. And more importantly, um, I think COVID is something that we have to recognize as climate. Um, that's one of, you know, that, that is, it's something that people have been saying for a generation, which is that, you know, as the planet warms, there will be more disease as the planet interconnects, there will be more, um, spread of disease more rapidly. It will become harder and harder to contain. Um, and I think that with COVID, it's important to recognize that everybody on planet earth has now been kind of touched by the climate crisis on some level. And I don't know if the messaging around COVID has captured that you know, necessarily. But I do think that there is something in the air uh, post-COVID that I think has led to a shift away from awareness building and a shift towards this question of what are we actually going to do. Right. Well, and to shift away from individual responsibility, which is something that corporations have been pushing for so long that people need to be thinking about their own, you know, quote-unquote carbon footprint, which is not a really valuable concept um, and a way of kind of eliding the contributions that huge multinational corporations and governments are making to the climate crisis. So, yeah, I think that that's one of the reasons that it's very hard to get people to think about this as a question of self-defense, um, because there is no individual person who is the villain, who is the person who's holding the gun that can be visualized. It's actually a very diffuse network of large corporations that are made up of many people and, that I guess have the legal status of people, but you know, practically speaking, it's not, it's not an easy movie villain to paint. Right. And that was, yeah, that was part of the way that we constructed this movie too, right? Is that the enemy is supposed to be the infrastructure in this, right? The big bad is actually the pipeline and the, the, the industries and the infrastructure that's destroying the earth. Right, which is, of course, you can't really understand it without doing it, without viewing it that way. But sometimes I'm like, we just need to have like one bad face, like one face per industry, so everyone could gal. I mean, here I am, I have my Bernie vibes mug. But like, one of the things that was so useful about what he did was he named the enemy, and sometimes it was abstract. But look what he what he did with Howard Schultz, because human beings really respond to stories, right? And they respond to a good guy and a bad guy, and that's just human nature. Um, I'm not saying that in some condescending, contemptuous way. Um, but maybe we do have to do that. Like we have to have one face and just get into the profits, individual profits of this one person per industry or per company or per corporation um, in order to galvanize people to see it as this, um, as something with real villains. Yeah, but I think that the problem is that we all participate in in climate change uh, to a greater or lesser degree. And I think that that's actually been one of the failures of the messaging of the movement is it's when you try to pin the problem on an individual, you inherently scapegoat all of the other individuals that are also contributing to the problem. And I think that's why focusing on this question of the machines that are killing us is so productive is because it, 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 and I think it's the reason why Andreas's book popped off the way that it did is because I think that this is, there is not, this is not a novel conversation to be having around questions of sabotage, questions of escalation of tactics. Um, he's not making a nar- novel argument about the historical legacy of that. Uh, I think the novelty of the argument is specifically this question of where do we direct that energy? 
And as Jordan said, you know, if once it is the infrastructure is the enemy, I think what it does is it opens up a world of thinking that is defensible. Because I can't say, oh, go pin it on the ExxonMobil CEO instead of the Chevron CEO. It's like, what? What about the CFO? What about, you know, the board? What about everybody who works at the company? Where do you draw those lines? It's actually impossible. It's impossible to architect an argument of, of, of responsibility that's airtight. But if you say this oil refinery has caused this level of damage and needs to go, Again, that opens up a world of thought. And as Dan said, that world of thought doesn't necessarily lead to the literal destruction of an oil pipeline, but it leads to a a way into considering what kind of tactics can be used to address the issue at its roots. Mm -hmm. And Oh, sorry, Jordan. Yeah, I I, I, I agree. And I think that I think a difficulty or with Pope with putting the blame on a single person is that then we get the idea that, well, if we replace that person with somebody with a kinder heart, you know, if we get this one person out of power, if we, if we punish this one person, then we're going to make progress. But really what we need is systemic transformation because if the system doesn't change, we will have another person like that person replacing that person. Um, So we actually have to have to have to focus on what put that person there instead of that. Right. So, yeah. I think it's helpful still to see, like, look how much the CEO makes. Maybe I'm just, I, I, I'm, maybe this is me. I'm, I'm inspired by kind of like, I, well, I'd like to call it righteous anger. Other people may <laughs> call it this vindictiveness or something, but I, I, I guess it just makes it um, sexier in a way. But I totally hear what you guys are saying. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that this is, but, but maybe this is, there should be some combination of the two things. Just spitballing how yeah. to save the planet here. <laughs> right. You know. I mean, I guess it's a question of like tactically, what is a valuable way to get the base galvanized? And right. I think the question of what it what you can do to get people angry, to get them engaged with the ideas, and then to guide them toward maybe the truer narrative. I think that, that those right. those two things could very well be separate. That you might say, okay, we can demonize these, you know, two people who are figureheads of this major organization. And, you know, if you're going after like the American Petroleum Institute or something, um, I mean, sure, that is like a uniquely bad organization in a lot of ways, but it is also serving a much broader set of concerns that need to be addressed. Um, but if there's somebody who gets really worked up about that particular organization, then you can bring them into the fold and try to divert that energy to other meaningful places. So I, I think that, yeah, the tactical question, the question of absolute truth in terms of responsibility are perhaps two different things. Yeah, there we, we just got it. We figured it out, guys. No, but I, I think that's actually a good point of bringing people in and meeting them where they're at and then showing them a more systemic analysis, which may not be the most emotional, immediate thing. But once you kind of tap into people's anger, I think but you I think, can. I, I think the part of the thing is, is that we need to make the abstract emotional. And I right. think that, that, that I get this desire to kind of latch on to the thing that is very immediate, uh, the kind of, you know, the, the robber baron CEO right. archetype. But I think that that's literally something that we're trying to conceptualize in the construction of this film is, 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 is saying, you know, we, I'll give you a really good example. Jordan and I were, when we were researching for this movie, we met with an oil pipeline expert and we were asking him about the valve station sequence, how they would shut the, I mean, we were brainstorming how they would shut off the valve, where they would go. And Jordan asked him, he was like, 
so, you know, these valve stations, you know, are there many of them? Like, and he was like, you probably passed at least 15 on your drive, your 15 minute drive here. And this was in Houston, Texas. And so as we left, we started looking around us and all of a sudden it was everywhere. And now I see valve stations everywhere I go. And I'd never noticed them before. We allow this stuff to blend into the background. And I think that the thing of the movie, just even in the sound design, right? All of the sound design in the movie is exactly realistic, except for the sound of the oil infrastructure, which takes on this almost sci-fi-esque, Darth Vader-esque, you know, kind of evil, booming quality. And that's all about trying to get audiences to recognize the, the kind of apocalyptic dystopian rot of these of these structures um, on an emotional level. And that is about trying, if once you can build those connections, then again, you start to reorient the culture in a productive way. Mm. Did you all agree on, um, did you have any political disagreements on this film? Like, did you have any debates about what would happen to a certain character or the trajectory of, of the plot, either artistically or politically? I mean, I think even within ourselves, we had disagreements, right? I think a lot of, uh, one of the great things about working, you know, with a four person team that, that shares authorship about this is that it was a process of deliberation. It was a process of consideration and that uh, ultimately nothing made it into the movie until we had talked it through and come to some form of consensus on it, which is helpful, I think, for the movie, but also just helpful for me, right? These are big, difficult, questions that are really hard to reckon with. And so much of what was amazing about this movie was actually being able to take the time to think through them with people that I respect and to, and to not get caught at the impasse where you say, well, I don't know what to think. And did your opinion on it, on anything change over the course of the movie, like through researching it or through making it? I think my perspective on a lot of things changed. I think something that for me was especially, you know, I think I had not thought a lot about indigenous issues yeah, before making this film. Really I think, um, you know, it's one of those things that one is vaguely aware of, uh, but I hadn't really been exposed to much. Um, and I think that having those conversations, having the collaborations with Aj, with Forrest, with Lauren, with Irene, um, talking with other filmmakers, I just think that like that was just a very profound shift in my thinking, um, especially with how invisible I think the the crisis and the historical legacy is, how little we actually just the way that we talk about things, um, you know, is is so there's just been so little reckoning, like meaningful reckoning with it. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that for me was, was very significant. Mm. Yeah. That was a really interesting part of the film where you have a character who's indigenous and you see him struggling with, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but you see his, his struggle with kind of, I mean, the legacy of settler colonialism, um, and of course, that made me think a lot of the um, the Dakota Access Pipeline, where we saw such a, uh, I mean, which was so largely an indigenous movement, and it put, and that was like at the forefront of the movement. Um, 
So that was, I appreciated that aspect of the film. Um, what, I have a question about the, the, the process, the artistic process. Um, when you first thought of adapting the, of the, the book, did you have any idea like where it would go? I mean, I assume it wasn't going to be just a manifesto turned into a film, right? Like, did you know we're going to make it about the people doing this and this many characters? Like, how did that work? That was the flashpoint of inspiration, you know, was, was getting halfway through the book. And I was in the same room with Ariella and I just turned to her and I was like, you know, what if we, what if we just literally delivered on this title and yeah. made a movie about the act. Um, so that was that was kind of where we started. And then in terms of where we went, it was very much kind of, um, it was a process of just finding where this story and where these characters would exist in the real world. Um, so, you know, just a lot of first person research, interviewing, talking to initially activists and journalists that Andreas connected us to, but then also, you know, we started from a perspective of what if us and our friends went out and did this because um, that felt like the most honest approach that we could take. And then it was about tapping our community and looking and listening to the kinds of stories that existed in our lives and figuring out how those fit into a story that we wanted to tell. And in terms of the editing process, I mean, I know in documentary film, editing is kind of everything, right? Like that determines the story. You decide what's going to be in it, what's not going to be in it. You decide the order you can make one, you can have the same exact footage and make someone look like a liar or the same exact footage and make them look like a hero. In, in, a, in a feature, how does it work? Can you give us some examples, Dan, of decisions that you made that shape the story or the messaging of the film? Yeah, I mean, I sort of view editing, I think what you're saying about the differences between documentary and fiction editing are, are absolutely right. I mean, I think that a documentary editor, which is you know a job I often also do, um, documentary editors do tend to have a lot of control over the very structure of the thing. And I think as fiction films go, I still tend to try to work on films that have a little bit more room um, for like growth and development and reflection transformation over the course of the editing process. And I think that was very much the case with, uh, with this film. There were some sections that really kept changing up until the very end um, that I think were really intimately connected to um just the, the identity of the thing and the, the, the way that the ideas are delivered. So for instance, I think of the, um, the very first flashback in the movie. So she's flashback is responsible for doing a lot of the setup work, both in terms of teaching people that the film is going to exist very much in this space of going into flashbacks and also setting up a lot of the ideas and emotional stakes um, that lay the groundwork for the rest of the action. Um, and then the other place that I think changed a lot over the course of the film was the, was the ending. Um, and this question of like, what is the thing we want to leave audiences with when, when the house lights come up and they walk out and are having conversations with their friends, what are the ideas that we want them to be turning over in their heads? Um, and so those two sections were really the things that we kept on revising over and over again. There were rewrites and posts. We did some additional photography during that time. We recorded that final monologue, I mean, countless times. I really, during production, I I during post. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you explain? I mean, I don't want to give away the ending, so let's talk about the Sochi flashback. What was like, a, how, how were some of the ways that you, that the editing changed that? This is when one of the characters, yeah. you, you learn how and why she's so um, uh, passionate uh, about this issue. 
Yeah, I think that one of the things that changed most was really this this pivotal scene in uh, in the university library where Sochi is sitting with her uh, fellow divestment activists and kind of coming to the realization that she actually doesn't totally agree with these tactics and is becoming very frustrated with how ineffective they are and how long-term the time horizons are and how short-term a lot of the harms of climate change are going to be. Um, and I think that that was a scene that we had originally tasked with delivering a lot of the kind of um, the ideas, the intellectual underpinnings of Andreas's text. Um, and so it sort of felt at times like we were like ventriloquists with the, with the characters and they were kind of just saying the ideas that we as the filmmakers were talking about. Um, and that was actually not the most interesting or compelling as, as a film. I mean, it felt like it was perhaps tipping our hands a little bit too much as filmmakers. And yes, I think it also came across as pretty didactic to a lot of people. And so the question became, how do we really ground this entire flashback in Sochi's own experiences and her kind of subjective relationship to these ideas? How do we, how can we make felt the, um, the way in which people's experiences inform their political beliefs and create ideology within individual people. Um, so that was really that was really the lens that we took to that to that entire scene, and it, the scene got significantly shorter. But I think that it's actually, despite having a lot less content, way better at delivering the ideas that that are currently in there. Right. Did oh Daniel? Uh, I, I was just going to say I think that the kind of building off that it comes back to that question and the spiritual question that we had of like, what is this movie saying? And I think that when we started making the film, you know, we were adapting a, this academic text that is pretty explicitly calling for this action. And I think that what we were trying to push back and complicate that, I think what we found in the edit was that when when it, whenever it felt anything less, anything less than the character saying the thing, right. um, the movie just kind of immediately broke. And I think that we kept thinking, oh, we can get away with this line because this idea is great. And right. then, you know, it was literally in the last three or four days of the edit that we were like, we can't, you know, and, and we had, we had a producer who stepped in and kind of was rigorously challenging us on like literally every frame of the movie. And, and it was just like, you know, he was just like, nobody cares about whether or not Nelson Mandela was a car bomber. Right. You know, uh, he, and, 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 and we kept being like, but it's a great line. And he was yeah. like, it doesn't matter. Right. You know what I mean? Like the, he's like, the idea is you have your opening sequence and you cut to how to blow up a pipeline. And the rest of the movie is that, is that political idea. And as long as it's a story, you'll be illustrating it. And I think that that's the thing is that I think that the fact that it is a story, the fact that it's fiction, the fact that it's character driven is what makes it a provocative piece of filmmaking and not a piece of propaganda. Right. Um, was that originally in the scene where they're like Martin Luther King and uh, Jesus? That was, was in the, that was in the Sochi scene, in the Sochi flashback scene. Okay. That was, again, that was a six and a half minute sequence that is now 90 seconds. So wow, yeah. there was so much discursive dialogue there that was, um, and it's not even bad. Like we, we would watch it on its own as a scene and we'd be like, this is good. All the performances yeah. are good. The writing is quite snappy. The editing is great. Like it was a good scene. And then we'd put it in the movie and it would, it would be the scene that would kind of kill the film for people. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or even if they liked it, sometimes they would walk away and they say, wow, love the movie. But that one scene really didn't sit right with me. Interesting. And 
Yeah. yeah. So we just had to really be hard on ourselves with that. And I mean, ultimately what it comes down to is this is a film that exists not in a vacuum, but in relation to other texts and other ideas, other films. And we hope that people will engage with a lot of those other things. And so the question is like, what can we in this film do best? And I don't think that the answer to that is all of the historical examples that are in Andreas's book. Right. Was there any discussion about what to call the film? Was there any debate about whether to call it How to Blow Up a Pipeline? Or was everyone on board with that immediately? That was a founding principle, yeah. (laughs) Did you get any pushback from produced? Yeah, no pushback. Were were you afraid that you're going to be on an FBI list now? or? So many thoughts on that. One, we produced the movie ourselves. So obviously if we hadn't, there probably would have been some pushback. But, you know everybody who worked on this movie, it was a very self-selecting process. Um, in terms of the FBI watch list, um, if you're not on it, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> I wouldn't say that uh, at all. Um, I'd say that, um, uh, I actually don't think they were on one. Yeah, but plenty of people are. Plenty of people who are not, by any stretch of the imagination, genuine threats to public safety. I don't think it's an indication of anything. Is this sabotage terrorism? I mean, not by... So I think we need to define terrorism as the indiscriminate killing of civilians for the purpose of causing terror in a population. But even by the UN definition, um, the UN says that it can be... uh, you know, intentional acts of, of maiming, of killing, uh, of, uh, uh, and the only other thing that they admit as terrorism is taking hostages, right? So by the definition that is settled in international law, you can't perform terrorism against infrastructure. You can only perform it against people. Right. I asked that question because that's something that they grapple with in the film. Um, you mentioned that th- the film deals with some of the critiques that um, Malm himself kind of pointed out to you can I know the one one scene that I uh interaction that I remember is um or one thing that stuck out as, as an example of that is when you have um uh Alicia talking to Sochi and saying people I'm gonna I'm hope I may misquote so you guys probably know the script obviously but people are out there doing the work and you want to do this flashy shit it's about ego so uh and then and then they have this really that same scene they have this really interesting discussion about like why should you be making decisions for people? And so she's like, well, it's better that I make these decisions than, I don't remember, who does she compare to? People like, who are currently doing it. Right, yeah. So what, what, can you talk about that and other kind of problematizations of, of the thesis put forward by mom? I mean, this is also something that, that Ariella speaks really eloquently about. So I think it would be a great question to ask her okay, too. I can follow up with her, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that to me, that scene between Sochi and Alicia is so much of the, the moral heart of the movie. Because like I was saying before, these are questions that we don't feel like we necessarily have the settled answers to. And when we were you know, thinking about putting this movie out into the world, there is a responsibility that goes along with it. And there is also the question of, you know, who are we to be doing this? Who are we to be saying this? Uh, and so that, that conversation that we were having, those questions we were asking ourselves and talking about, I think really made it into character. And at the end of that scene, it isn't a clean resolution. Neither person fully convinces each other. They have to sort of, um, they have to live in their contradiction and, and keep moving. And I think that's powerful. 
So would you guys engage in this kind of sabotage? Can you even answer that without, now we're really going to get you on an FBI <laughs> list, depending on how you answer. And that was part of my interview with the great creative team. That was part of my interview with part of the great creative team behind the hit film, the environmentalist heist film, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Make sure you become Patreon supporters so you can see that full interview and see how they answered that very provocative question. And that, of course, is at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also, uh, you'll get tons of other great uh, exclusive content, as you probably know, if you're already a Patreon supporter. Also, we're still getting signatures for that Roger Waters petition, where we're calling on the government of Frankfurt to reverse its cancellation of his concert. I talked about this with him last week, but also there's a great Patreon where he spills some tea about certain musicians in particular. But make sure you sign the petition. We put the link in the description. It's a change.org petition. And as people probably know, uh, Roger Waters is someone who defends the human rights of Palestinians. He's an outspoken critic of Israel. So, of course, he's being smeared as a an anti-Semite, and they had the nerve to cancel his concert. We know that Germany is so shameless about this that they even canceled the artistic exhibit of a Jewish artist whose mother was a Holocaust survivor. So they are totally shameless in this, the chutzpah, so to speak, the gall. But make sure you do sign that petition. We, we passed 35,000 signatures. Also, we passed 90,000 subs. Let's get to 100,000 subs. Bye, everyone. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.